You can be seated. This morning, if you'll take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. So it took us two weeks to get through the first two verses, so we're going to pick up the pace just a little bit today, only to slow back down as we get into uh, verse 9 uh, next week. But chapter 12 continues to build off of what we have already studied in verses 1 and 2. So as we roll into cha- verse 3 this morning of chapter 12, this is just, it's almost like a mathematical equation that because this has happened, this now happens, and now because the first two have happened, this third event or third part of the process uh, begins to kick in. So the first week we looked at what it looks like to be, or not what it looks like, but the call to be a living sacrifice. That is ultimately what it means to be a Christian, is that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Why? Because verse 1 says that is the only reasonable response to someone that's experienced the mercies of God that Paul wrote about for the first 11 chapters. And so last week, we moved into what we called those, uh, those altar-binding verbs uh, that we should not conform. That was verb number one in the negative. Don't be conformed to this world, but the positive verb, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so this morning, we arrive here in verse 3, and we're not going to read all uh, six verses at one time. We're going to read them as we come to them. So let's just read verse 3 uh, to begin with. So Paul says, For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. All right? So that's verse 1. So here's the very first point to this morning's sermon. All right? The very first point is this. Thinking rightly about ourselves. So the renewed mind. How do you know that you are your mind is being renewed, right? Because in verse 2, that's where Paul brought us to. He, he brought us to this point that says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So how do we know that our mind is being renewed? Well, he tells us right here that word for is the connection. It's the conjunction that connects this stream of thoughts that Paul has be- begun back in verse 1. How do we know that we have a renewed mind? or our mind is being renewed, that we think rightly about ourselves. So, that, so the, that lends itself to the question, how are we to think about ourselves? In verse 3, Paul again advises us negatively and then positively. So let's first look at uh, the positive, okay? I mean, the negative. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, what? Not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to. The word for there indicates a transition from what Paul has just commanded, which is spiritual dedication, to his next section of teaching, which is, which is what we're going to call spiritual service. This bridge that connects the two sections... Uh, spiritual dedication to spiritual service, this bridge we're going to call spiritual attitude. So what connects the bridge of spiritual dedication, verse 1 and 2, to now what we're about to see in verses 3 through 8, which is spiritual service, what connects that? Well, spiritual attitude. The Christian's proper attitude is humility. Not to think more highly than, than ourselves than we ought to think. Lack of this foundational virtue causes many believers to stumble. And we have it right there in the news before us this week. 
um, the president of Liberty University, Dr. Uh, well, I don't know if he's a doctor or not, but Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, and we see his fall from grace. I promise you, rooted in that fall from grace, from the president of university, at the very root of it is a lack of humility. I'm going to take, let, let me just go out on a limb and, and make this statement. Every spiritual failure is rooted in a lack of humility. Why? Because every sin is rooted in what? Is rooted in what? Pride. Pride is the root under every sin. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden? All of a sudden, they thought that they knew better than God. They believed the lie that God was withholding information from them, and that they knew better than God. And so they listened to the you know the slippery serpent's words and fell into sin. No matter how well grounded we may be in God's Word, how theologically sound we may be, or how vigorously we may seek to serve Him, our gifts will not operate so that our lives lives can be spiritually productive until self is set aside. Now, okay, now listen, here's what I need you to do. When you hear this today, I need you to keep making connections Back to verses 1 and 2, right? Because remember, think about this. Think about verse 1, then have a plus sign after it. Then think about verse 2, have a plus sign after it. And now as we think this section of verses 3 through 8, the connection, this plus this plus this plus this. Okay, It's, it's building on top of each other. So unless we set self to, to the side then we'll never be able to operate in this spiritual attitude of humility. But what did Paul tell us in the previous verses? He told us to what? Put ourselves on the altar. Die to ourselves. Become a living sacrifice. Don't conform to this world. Why? Because this world is what? It, it has a father who's called the devil who is what? Nothing but prideful. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because your mind at its very core is prideful. Nobody has to teach you to be prideful. It comes natural. It comes natural. So look at what I've got on the screen. From, self de- from self-denial in, spiritual worship, in the spiritual worship of God flows, okay, that's kind of that plus sign, Flows self-surrendered to the will of God. That was verse 2. And from self-surrendered flows selfless service in the work of God. So there's those, those, that word flows kind of plus signs. We just build and build and build on top of each other. So from self-denial in the spiritual worship of God. Why? Because if you're truly going to worship God, the only way to worship God truly in spirit and in truth is self-denial. Okay? That's the only way to do it. Flows self-surrender. So if I'm in self-denial, guess what? Self-surrender is going to come easy to the what? To the will of God. This is the will of God. Our reasonable worship is what? That we live as a living sacrifice. That we deny ourselves. And from that self-surrender flows selfless service in the work of God. So what's going to happen? You're going to become a servant. You're going to get involved in the work of God. Or one might render it to say this. I I like this translation. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is a universal tendency of the human race. Now, this this, uh, phrase where Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, this word think is an interesting word in the original language. You could really say it this way. You could render it, I say to everyone, do not super think of yourself. That's what, he's, that's what he has in mind when he uses this word, don't think more highly of yourselves. He's, he's like, don't super think of yourself. One can clearly see Paul's emphasis on the mind and specifically in the context of what this renewed mind looks like. The renewed mind is not going to be locked on to itself. 
A renewed mind does one thing. When it thinks about itself, it doesn't super think about itself, but it thinks of itself soberly. Did you see that word in verse 3? He says, but think, but to think with what? Sober judgment. So look, you're either, your tendency is to have super thinking, and Paul says you need to have sober thinking. Y'all tracking with me right now? Y'all tracking with Paul? Your tendency is what? Super thinking. That's why you've got to practice self-denial. That's why you've got to put yourself on that altar. That's why you, you, you're not supposed to conform to the world. That's why you need to be transformed. Why? Because you will super think yourself, not sober think yourself. I think Paul knew of some individuals in, in the book of Romans who thought that they were better than others. When we get to chapter 14, I'll show that to you. The opening verses of 14 give us a hint to this. Whatever the case, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is our universal tendency of the entire human race. So look, let's just quit being surprised that people seem that people are egotistical. That is who they are by nature. Now some people are super egotistical, right? Matter of fact, that seems to be what most people are today. I mean, maybe not most people in general, but most of what we see seems to be superego. Especially if you watch any TV and especially if you watch any politics. Superego, super think about ourselves. So, I want us to, 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 to go just a little deeper into this and, and evaluate this on two levels. Okay, about how are we going to deal with our pride? It's one thing to expose our pride. It's another, it's, it's another in how to deal with it. So let's expose it very quickly. Okay? Two ways pride plays itself out. Okay? Our, our endemic nature loves to overthink itself in at least two ways. First is self-evaluating. I mean self-elevating. Evaluating. Self-elevating. We love to self-elevate ourselves. That's the bragger, the person who loves to brag on what they're doing, the one who loves to pat themselves on the back, the one who loves uh, to tell you how smart they are or how much he or she's done or how strong they are or how rich they are. They're legends in their own mind. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody want to admit that they're that way? Don't do that. Walt Whitman expressed our universal tendency in these words. He said, I find no sweeter fat than sticks to my own bones. You'll have to think about that one. So self-elevating. Uh, self we love to promote ourselves. The second way that um, we overthink ourselves is self-deprecating. It's self-deprecating. Really, to me... The, the, the self-elevator, you know, I, I can almost, I shouldn't say tolerate that, but that one is one that I kind of overlook. You know, I can kind of tune that person out. And, and, and probably the, the way that pride shows itself most in our lives is not being self-elevating, but it's right here in being self-deprecating. As a matter of fact, I've shared with you in the past, this is how pride in, in, in the past and at times will still play itself out in my life. I, I told you about being confronted by a good friend of mine that I was being, that in, in, a, in this moment where someone was giving me uh, some kudos about uh, a particular action that I had taken in my life. And I was like, oh, shucks, no, I didn't really do anything, you know, just... You know, I was kind of downplaying, kind of self-deprecating. And when it was all over with, my friend came up to me and said, you know, you were trying not to be prideful, but you were just being extremely prideful. Why? Because pride shows itself up in self-deprecation. And you may say, well, Brother Jason, how does, it, how does pride show itself in self-deprecation? Because here's what's happening. 
When we, when we have this attitude of, oh, no, I really didn't do anything, or I'm really not that great, or I'm not as good as you make me out to be, really what we're doing, and this is the way my friend explained it to me, he said, what you're really doing is you got your, the stop sign out, and you're saying, oh, no, 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 but your other hand is doing this right here. Keep it coming, keep it coming, keep it coming. Right? Because that's really, we know our humanity and our sinfulness knows that if we downplay the accomplishment, guess what people will do? They'll just keep piling it on. So you may not be a self-elevator, but you may be a self-deprecator. And I'll just tell you this, to me, the self-deprecating is the one that stinks the worst. Why? Because it's kind of a two-edged sin in the fact that you're trying to downplay it while at the same time you, you just try, you, you're trying to coax on more. Why? Because you want your ego stroke. You want people to tell you how great you really are, or at least to, to, to some degree and level, to, uh, uh, to confirm what you already think about yourself. That's pride, folks. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his sermon on this particular text. He basically said that uh, <laughs> he had a man that he met that was basically kind of had this self-deprecating uh, approach, and he was using that uh, with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones one day. And uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just said, you know what? You're really not a great person. You're exactly what you think you are. Guess what that does? That, shut, that, that shuts that whole situation down in a heartbeat, right? I'm not telling you to go out and do that. But you know what? I'm grateful. You, you, you might need to do that off to the side with someone. Or if there's no one around, that might be the perfect time to do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it in front of a group of people. I wouldn't do it in a situation where it could embarrass the person in front of others. But listen... I am for, my, my friend that did that to me, he didn't do that to me while that was happening. He waited till that was over with, and we were alone together when he brought that to my attention. And it has forever, the, it has forever changed the way that I respond when people say something to me positively or give me credit for something or praise for something or pat me on the back for something. It's been tremendously helpful in putting to death pride in my life. He says at the end of verse 3, but to think with sober judgment. Instead of super thought, there is to be sober thought. How do you think more high, how, how do you think soberly about yourself? If you're drunk on who you are, how do, how do you get sober? That's ultimately what the question is. Well, I'm going to tell you what. You need a good friend. You need a good friend. You need somebody that will be honest with you in ways that will oftentimes hurt you. I think back to the Proverbs. The, the, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And so sometimes what we need is we need someone that will tell us exactly what we need to hear. That's the only way that we can get sober. We, of course, we need to read God's Word, and we need to hear what God's Word is saying about us. C.S. Lewis said this. this, uh, this you, if you don't write anything else down, I've used this a hundred times since I've been here, write it down. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's humiliation. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So do you get that? It's not humiliation. It's humility. And humility is not thinking about you all the time. To even, a, to even get near humility, even for a moment... Uh, so... Let me preface this before I read it. So, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes a, a little section on humility. And he writes about 
what the effects of humility are like. So listen to what he says. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, this is British talk, okay, greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody, self-deprecating. Probably all, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Thinking less of yourself. How many of you find it hard to listen to somebody else? You know why I think that is? It's because we're too much thinking about what we want to say. So Lewis says that to be in the presence of humility, number one, you may not even realize it at the moment. But when the conversation is over with and when the encounter with that person is over with, you walk away from that situation saying, you know what, there was something incredibly refreshing and unique about that experience. That's what humility is like. It doesn't bring attention to itself initially. It's one of those experiences that often you feel and you realize after you've had the experience. Let me finish what Lewis says. He says, if you do dislike him... It will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So Paul continues, look, look on. He says, to each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what, is this, what does this term measure of faith uh, mean? Okay? Measure of faith does not mean that God has given different, different, amount, different, <laughs> different amounts of faith to use. It doesn't mean that Annette's got one measure of faith and Chuck's got another measure of faith. Okay, That's not what it means. The Greek word measure is from the word metron, where we get our word meter. And it simply means this, it's a standard of measurement. Paul is saying that God has given us all the same standard of faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ. And faith that makes us profoundly equal in God's eyes. Each of us, with that, with that faith, possess the same righteousness of Jesus. We are part of the same body and we have received the same Spirit. So same Jesus, same Spirit, part of the same body. We are as righteous as the most righteous saint that's ever lived, just as and just as valuable. Because we have what? The same righteousness of Christ in all of us who profess to be Christians and the same Spirit at work within us. So he's saying that, so again, he is reinforcing the previous statement, because we are all equal... Right? Because we all have the same measure of faith. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You, are, you and I were such, de such desperate sinners that Jesus had to die, die to save us. But listen, don't think too highly of yourself. But listen, this is what he's saying too. Don't think too lowly of yourself either. Going back to what I said earlier, w w Christians don't live in humiliation. We don't humiliate ourselves because through faith He's given you all His righteousness and put His Spirit in you. So don't think too high, but don't think too low. It's impossible to think more highly of yourselves than we ought if we are sound on this point. If we truly make Christ our standard, we will experience 
the reality of the beatitude that's on the screen. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I love, the, I love this paraphrase, so I wanted to share it with you. This is a, a one man's paraphrase of that opening beatitude. How happy are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's really good. How happy are those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend themselves to God. That means I have nothing that I can come into God's presence with and say, hey, look at me, you should accept me based on this. As one of the reformers said, there's only one, thing, there's only one contribution that you and I make to our salvation. You know what that contribution is? You say, I thought, I didn't think we contributed anything to our salvation. We do. We have one contribution, our sin. Our sin. That's who we are. That's why we should be humble. I mean, so let me go back to the, what I said earlier. Can I, can I express to you how the events at Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Sr., how that can bring humility in, into your life and has bringing humility into my life as someone who is a leader? You better watch it. You're one prideful event away from a fall too, big boy. And guess what? You're one prideful action away from your fall. You're but a series of prideful decisions away from destroying your life. Destroying your family. Destroying something that you've built. So I'm not going to sit there and, and look at Jerry and shake my head and say, Good Lord, I can't believe that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get down on my knees and say, Good Lord, please help me not to fall into that trap and please restore this man by your grace. Not back to being president, but restore to him the joy of his salvation. Because if you read, he fell down some steps a few days after... Uh, he resigned as the president of U Liberty University. And the reason why he fell down the steps was because he was highly intoxicated. And people look at that and say, what, look at, what a scoundrel. And I, you know what I see? I look at that and I see David in Psalm 51. I see somebody that had lost the joy of their salvation and turned to try to kill the pain of a situation because they had no joy in their life. So, second truth that I want you to see this morning about how do we know that, our mind, that we are being renewed in our mind? Well, first we've got to think right about ourselves, right? You've got to get you right first, okay? You know, the saying today is, hey, you just do you. Look, you've got to do you first. You've got to get you straightened out. And then you can start rightly thinking about fellow believers. Because, see, well, what's about to happen is... We're, we're making the shift from us, now it goes from inward, now the whole rest of the chapter and everything that comes to the end of Romans deals with interpersonal relationships. So rightly thinking about fellow believers. Verses 4 and 5 say this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ, and individually members of one another. So again, there's that word for, right? So what do we do again? There's, a, there's another plus sign. We just keep adding on. We just keep connecting this series of thoughts. When we think rightly about ourselves, okay, look, when we think rightly about ourselves, we will be able to think accurately about others in the body of Christ. Woo. We, we, we just started to stop. We could stop there and preach. Do, do you hear what Paul's saying? When you start thinking rightly about yourself, you start thinking rightly about others. So, what does that say? What's the flip side of that? If you're not thinking rightly about yourself, guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to think rightly about other believers.
Here Paul, a master illustrator, gives us a wonderfully mystical conception based on the human anatomy. So there's what? There's unity, that's one body. There's diversity, there's many. There's interdependency, members of one another. Any gifts we have are not for selfish use or display, but the good of the body. And that's what we're about to get into in just a moment. So hold tight. We're going to get into these gifts. No gift is self-sufficient and none is unnecessary. When we realize all this, we are thinking soberly. The illustration underscores three main characteristics within the body. So let's, let's take a look. This will be quick. Unity. Okay? So first, we will, uh, so first we're going to see is unity. Everyone who has experienced the mercies of God are members of his body. We must emphasize that while this unity is mysterious, it is real. So let, I wish I could go into more depth about this, but let me just refer you to Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, especially the beginning of chapter 4. Paul spends Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talking about what Christ has done, and then he says, because Christ has done this, you are all part of this body. But here's what's interesting. Paul never tells us that we are to work to be unified. He says we are to preserve the unity of the body. That's what he says in in the first three verses of chapter 4 of Ephesians. So listen, we're not trying to be unified this morning. We are unified because we are in Christ. What we must work at is preserving the unity that we have. And some people are talking about, well, we're just trying to, you know, we're just trying to, you know, you know, bring our church back into unity. No, you're not trying. What we're trying to do is get back to preserving the unity that we've allowed to be attacked. It's preservation. We are one because we are all in Christ. But then, praise God, the next word, there's diversity. Aren't you glad that we're not all alike? And some of us don't like other people because they're not like us. But praise God that not everybody's like us. You know, my my world during the day revolves around insects. So I was doing some training this week uh, on spiders. And uh, one of my technicians, he was reading some material and he said, he said, good Lord. I said, said, did you read something good? He said, there's... 3,500 different species of spiders in just North America alone. That's not counting the world. That's just North America. And some of y'all may think, I got all of those at my house. <laughs> we'll call for pest control at Orkin. We'll take care of you. Um, but God loves diversity. He could have just made one spider, but he didn't. Why? Because he loves to show off his creativity. Well, guess what? When we look around at the diversity, even those people that are not like we are, instead of you know allowing that to rub us the wrong way, we should see the beauty of God's handiwork in that, right? That praise God that this person's not like me. What a what a boring monolithic place that this would be. And so We have this profound, real unity, but we also have this real diversity. He says, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in Christ. I praise God for that. And listen, it is our diversity that makes us stronger. Be bad to have a church full of preachers, right? Who's going to listen? I'm going to tell you one thing about preachers. We don't like to sit out there and listen to other preachers. We like to preach. It wouldn't be good. Listen, it, it wouldn't be good to have all of anyone's spiritual gift within a church. Why? Because we need all of it to make it work. But listen, what we have to understand is, we have to understand where spiritual gifts and that diversity that, the, that God has within the church can actually, how the devil can work in that to try to bring about disease in the church. 
Because there's some gifts that are just not going to... Sometimes they can, they can have conflict with each other just by the nature. Like, like take for my gift, for example. The, the preaching, teaching gift can get really sideways with somebody that has the serving gift. Because I think people are to come in and sit down and be taught and preached to. And all they want to do is go out and serve people. And they think that I'm cold-hearted because I'm not out there serving, and I think they're shallow spiritually because all they want to do is serve people. And guess what? We both need each other. I need to serve, and they need to sit and listen. Both gifts are equally important. That's why God gave it to us. Okay? Then there's what, what we will call mutuality. We must not stress this truth of diversity without grasping the balancing truth of our mutuality. And individually, members of one body. That's what the end of the verse says. And individually, members of one body. 1 Corinthians 12 beautifully emphasizes this mutuality by pointing out that when one member rejoices, guess what? Guess what we're supposed to do? Say it. Rejoice. When somebody's hurting in the body, we what? We hurt. That's what it means to be together, interdependent. Each of us belongs to and needs the other. Now listen, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say codependent, I said interdependent. We got a lot of codependent church people. And what I mean by that is just simply, they're the ones sucking the life out of everybody else and not giving anything. We are interdependent. We need each other. Listen, we need to take life from others and we need to give life to others. The church is no place for long rangers. If your life seems to be stuck, even though you read the Bible and pray, it may be that you are neglecting getting together with other believers and are depriving yourself of the exchange necessary for spiritual growth. Now, please listen to me, those of you that are sitting on the other side of the computer screen, and to all of those of you sitting in here. My greatest concern concerning the pandemic is this. That statement right there. How long have we been into this? Do y'all realize that we are a half a year into a pandemic, we've spent the last six months, by and large, separated from each other. And I just want to give us all a warning. This is no, listen, don't, don't you feel guilted like you got to get back to church? Okay, because I've already told you from day one, we're not going to do any of this guilt in business and putting people down. But I just want to throw something out there for all of us to consider this morning is, this is the perfect opportunity for your enemy and my enemy, the enemy of our souls, the one who wants to uh, uh, stop God's work in this world, stop your spiritual growth. Listen to me. I'm going to say it one more time. If you're stuck, and, and yet you're reading the Bible, and you're praying, and you're doing all those spiritual disciplines that you're doing, I'm going to tell you something. Consider for one moment, could it be the fact that you're stuck, and you're not moving forward, is because you are totally disconnected from the life of the body of Christ. And I told you, when I, I didn't get to go to church until uh, second Sunday in, October, uh, in August, and when we went into that church, it dawned on me like just a ton of bricks. I didn't know anybody in that church, Brandy, except for the pastor. And Brandy and I, we were total strangers there. But it's like, man, this is oxygen. I am breathing in the life of God. Why? Because I'm just with God's people. Wow. What an encouragement to look around and see all those people. What an encouragement it is to see you. I'm encouraged that you're tuning in. But listen, be, beware. Beware. And some of you had stopped going to church long before the pandemic started. And you're in the situation that you're in because you have broken with the people of God. 
a few verses, and then we'll get to the last point. For this reason, this is Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, after he tells them this is what Jesus has done, and then before he goes into chapter 4, 5, and 6, now this is what you are to do. Watch what he says. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may... That word, you, that's plural, so for Southerners, it's y'all. So I'm going to read it like, like it is. That he may grant y'all to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, watch this, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge that y'all may be filled all with all the fullness of God. Did you get all of that? How is all of that happening? Paul is saying to us that experience that he is praying for us to happen happens not in a singular pronoun, but in a plural pronoun called the church. Y'all, the body. How beautiful this all is. Those who think rightly about themselves, measuring themselves by the standard which God has given them in their faith, discern the one body and recognize that they do not exist for themselves. And as a result, they are free to go on to the last point, and that is thinking rightly about your spiritual gifts. So, here's how you know that you're experiencing the renewed mind. You start thinking rightly about yourself, you start thinking rightly about other people, and now you start thinking rightly about your gifts. So here's what he says in 6, 7, and 8. Having your gifts differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In thinking rightly about our gifts, we must first consider a few simple truths. Okay? Everybody, if you're a Christian, you, you all have gifts. Everybody's got gifts. No Christian is left out. You may not have one of those specifically mentioned here, though you probably do. But you do have at least one spiritual gift. C.S. Lewis best illustrates this. If you, if, look, if you'll just go to chapter 10 of the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you can read the full chapter of this snippet I'm going to give you. He, he illustrates spiritual gifts in this way. When the children exit the cave or the burrow of, the, of Mr. and Miss Beaver, they find themselves, Chuck, this could be your new name, Father Christmas. That's what Lewis calls Santa Claus, Father Christmas. Father Christmas, Santa Chuck just sounds better, but I, Father Christmas is pretty cool. Father Christmas explains that Christmas has finally arrived and the witch, witch's power is weakening. He gives everyone a gift. He gives Miss, Miss Beaver a new sewing machine. I know all the ladies are thinking, really, a sewing machine? And tells Mr. Beaver that his dam has been mended. He then gives gifts to the children... And this is what he says. If you watch the movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, this part is in there. He gives them their gifts, uh, their tools, as he calls them, and he tells them, children, these are tool, tools, not toys. Peter receives a sword and a red shield with a gold line emblazoned on it to defend himself in battle. He gives Susan a bow and arrow to be used in time, in time of greatest need, as he does not intend her to fight in battles. He also presents her with a horn that she can blow that will help save her from danger. He offers Lucy a dagger that is also to be used in times of greatest need. When Lucy protests that she is brave enough to fight in battle, he gravely tells her, battles are ugly when women fight. He also gives Lucy... Oh, by the way, in the movie, they change that line. <laughs> they make that line very politically correct. So, But that's the way it's written in the book, by the way. He also gives Lucy a bottle of magic uh, uh, potion, let's call it that, and explains that a few drops uh, will heal any injury or ailment. Then 
Father Christmas, gives them all marvelous food and tea and dashes off to bring Christmas to more people, animals, and creatures. Let me ask you a question. Do you know your spiritual gift? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? If you don't, your, your, your Christian life will not take off, or off until you discover it and deploy it. God saved you to serve. Serving unlocks God's deepest purposes for you. Let me ask you another question. Are you bored with Christianity? Does your life basically consist of attending church? A, ye a yes answer to both of these questions is proved that you have yet to discover your spiritual gifting. I have yet to meet a Christian who understands their spiritual gift and who has de discovered it, then deployed their spiritual gift, who is bored with Christianity. Not one. I remember when I was, you know, young, when I was in those early teenage years, church, most Sundays could be awful boring. But when the, when the light went off, and all of a sudden I understood that I was saved to serve and God had given me a gift, I pretty much spent the last 30 plus years of my Christian existence never experiencing a minute of boredom in faith. Why? Because I, I discovered my gift and I have spent the, 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 the remainder of my life deploying that gift. Yes, at times not as good as at other times, but to the best of my ability, deploying that gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that when we come together as a church, everybody should come with something to offer. There should, there should be nobody who comes to church just to charge their spiritual batteries and to get on with their self-focused life. Whew. When you come to church, you say, what role am I supposed to be playing in this body? And how can I, be, and how can I serve? Nothing will help you grow more in your relationship with Jesus like helping someone else grow in their relationship with Jesus. And you might say, well, I don't know a lot. Use what you know. I promise you there's somebody that knows less than you do. And if you think that you know very little, trust me, there's people that don't know anything. We all have gifts, but listen, the list is not exhaustive. Okay? The New Testament lists different, uh, lists different ones out in six different places. As best I can tell, there's 22 spiritual gifts, loosely, but the Apostle Peter lumps them into two categories. And he does that in 1 Peter 4.11, and I won't read all that to you, but you might want to write it down. He breaks them into two categories, that's speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to them simply as spirituals. It's a weird word that just uh, means spirit manifestation. Write this down. Spirit, what is a spiritual gift? Okay? Because we got all kind of whack, whack, whacked out definitions of spiritual gifts. It, this is a simple one. It's whatever God wants you to do in the world through His church. It's whatever God wants you to do in the world through His church. Listen. That's how spiritual gifts are always operated. In the world, through the church. In the world, through the church. Listen, you can't, if you're not connected to a church, and you say, well, I'm out here in the world using my spiritual gifts and I'm serving, but I'm not connected to a church. Listen, you're not doing it the right way. And you're not doing it in the way that the Scripture teaches for you to do it. And so to me, what you're really doing is you're just living in disobedience. Because God has structured it that spiritual gifts are given to people who are part of the body and the gift is used in the world through the church. Sometimes the gifts are permanent like mine, teaching, but I've, I've experienced other spiritual gifts at moments in time. Like, I'm not the most merciful person, but there have been times where I believe that I've, I've experienced the gift of mercy 
uh, in unusual ways in my life, in ways that I know that are just totally contrary to who I naturally am. So look, there, there can be moments where you can have a gift and use it, and it just kind of be for that moment in time. Why? Because God's wanting to do something in the world through His church until He gives you that gift for that moment. Some of you may not be a teacher. You, know, you may not have the gift of spiritual teaching, but all of a sudden you're thrust into a moment, right? And all of a sudden you've, you've got to teach, and you start teaching, and you're like, oh my goodness, where is all this coming out from, right? It's like, where do, I, I don't even know if I know that. I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's there, it's coming out. You can have that gift for a moment in time. But everybody's got a, at least a gift that is permanent, that you operate in all the time. This is just real quick. Nobody's got them all. Nobody has them all. Which leads me back to this concluding thought. Nobody's got them all. I'm going to save the gifts to Wednesday night online Bible study. All right? Nobody's got them all. Paul says that we're a body, right? He illustrates this by saying that we're part of a body. How does a body take care of itself? Like right now, your stomach. What's, is, is it talking to you? Is it saying, preacher, please, are you about done? Those of you that are at home, you're like, ha, I'm going to the fridge while this is playing. And I, don't, I don't ever get hungry during preaching anymore, right? Your stomach's talking to you. It's signaling your brain to do what? Please, get me some food now. Your blood sugar is saying to you, I'm crashing. Your brain's telling your feet, go ahead and get up. Nobody will care if you walk out the back door. They won't say anything. There are nice people there. Your feet are saying, your brain's telling your feet to do what? Go to the refrigerator. Your brain's now telling your hand, open the refrigerator. Or it's telling your hands as it grips the steering wheel, go to the first fast food restaurant that you see. How does the body take care of itself? With other members. That's the point. With other members. When God wants to do something in your life, He does it through other members of the body. Therefore, if you separate yourself from the body, you have no right to ask God anything in your life. Ooh. That's a little bold. Well, let me ask you a question. If God does His work in the world through His church, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people crying out, God, I need you to do this. God, I need you to do that. And they're like, my prayer falls on deaf ears. It's like God doesn't even hear me. You know what my question is to them? Are you plugged into a local body of believers? Well, no. I've had a bad experience in church. Your answer is probably in a local church with some local believers. Hmm. Why? Because God gives people gifts in those church churches to do what? To carry out His mission in the world. We have far too undervalued what the Bible says about the local body of Christ. And so some of you aren't getting answers because some of you have divorced yourself from the local church. And God's got gifts of people in those churches that He can help you and that He can answer those questions and you can find everything that you need. But as long as you stay away from the church, as long as you let past events and past hurts and past hang-ups, as long as you let that affect you, listen to me, I guarantee you, you'll never get the answer. And I can prove that to you in the fact that some of you have not been in the church and sometimes you, God has sent an answer or He has, He has assisted you in a moment only because one of His members of the body who's connected to a local body encounters you in your daily life who is doing the work of God through a local church. And so, I thought about whether I'd say this in closing, so I think I will, then David will sing this last song. Um, and I'll finish the rest of this up Wednesday night. 
Listen, maybe not so much for you guys in here, but I'm going to take every advantage of the fact that all kinds of different people, which blows me away, tune in to this live stream. I, I just want to say something to all of us, but in particular to those of you who are not plugged in to a church right now. As I, as I prepared for this, my heart was brought back to numerous people that I know that are no longer in church right now that at one time served in the body of Christ uh, in incredible ways. Why are they no longer in church? Why are they no longer serving the Lord? Because you must serve the Lord in your gifting and you must serve the Lord for His glory. I can't tell you how many people, because I dealt so many years in student ministry, got so heavily involved in student ministry that when their children graduated and, and went off to college, they graduated from church. They moved on from church. Why? Because their service wasn't necessarily even in their gifting and it wasn't even for the, the right reason. I think back to the people that made tremendous, significant differences in my life. I grew up, I played sports. Baseball was, was my main sport. That was a sport that I felt like I was probably my best at. But I wasn't a very good ball player at the beginning of my little league career. And I remember, I was like, you know what? Why was I not, why was I not better than I could have been? My early coaches were all coaches who coached because their son played. And guess what happened? When their son quit playing ball, they quit coaching. They weren't really coaches. They were there to make sure their son got taken care of. But then I got to meet a guy named Bruce Hobson. And Bruce Hobson coached me when I played for Boot and Sean Drugs. And a nobody baseball player went from a nobody baseball player to an all-star baseball player in one year. But you know the thing about Bruce Hobson? Bruce Hobson didn't have any kids at play. Bruce Hobson was an old gray-headed man who loved kids and loved coaching and wanted to help kids get better at playing baseball and give kids confidence in what they were doing. You know who makes the best coaches? Not the, not, not the parents who jump in and coach because their kids play it. It's the people that were there coaching before and when their kids are gone are coaching long after. Why? Because you know they're there to coach because they love to help other people. Listen, we've got to, you've got to evaluate why you serve in the church. You don't serve because your kids are involved in that department or that area of the church. You serve because you have a gifting in your life and you know that the body of Christ at blank church is in desperate need of your gifting. Why? Because we are one and diverse and we need each other. And God's got a will for this church to accomplish, and He'll and God God's will will not be accomplished. Now watch this. In the way that it could be accomplished, to the degree that it could be accomplished, if you were using your gifts. Remember what we learned about prayer? You have not because you ask not. Remember what we also learned about prayer? A lot of us are falling into more temptation than we should because we're not praying what? Lord, deliver me from temptation. Keep me from temptation. Well, listen, God's got a lot that He wants to do, and I'm sure there is much more that He would accomplish if you and I, as the people of God, and those of you that are watching, no matter if it's here or somewhere else, would plug ourselves into a church and say, you know what, right now I don't even know what my spiritual gift is, but I'm seeking God and I'm seeking my spiritual gift, and as soon as I know, then guess what? I'm going to start serving in that capacity, but until then, I'm going to serve in wherever service is needed. That's how you get there. If you don't know where you need to go right now, just get to serving somewhere and start praying, and God will do the rest. It won't be a goosebump feeling or whatever, 
But I'm going to tell you something. God will reveal to you. But listen, again, you're not ever going to find your spiritual gift if you're apart from people because how are you going to know that that's really your spiritual gift? Somebody may walk up to you one day while you're serving and say, you know what, I've been watching you and I really think that blank might be your ministry. But how can that happen if you're not plugged in? So renewed thinking is what? Thinking right about yourself? thinking right about others, and then thirdly, thinking right about your spiritual gifts. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. So what's your spiritual gift and why don't you know it? That's my first question. What's your spiritual gift, I mean, what's your spiritual gift and why don't you know it? And then to those of you that do know your spiritual gift, my question is simply this. Are you using it or are you not? And if you're not, why not? And the answer to